excited because in 2023, we've got such a great teaching team here, and um, I'll be kind of splitting between Rockford and Elgin. My family, we live in Hoffman Estates, and so I'm excited to be here um, helping lead with Eric, um, the staff, and, and just the vision and the mission and love just what God is doing here. Uh, oh, that's kind. Wow, thank you. Thank you. Oh, Trevor, I love you. I love you, man. Gosh, I love you, Mom. Um Hey, but one of the things I love to bring is clarity. I think clarity is one of the most helpful pieces. And I know some of you are like, we love you, but after I give you this number, you might not. You might not, so we'll see. Um, but I wanna, what I want to do is uh, four times a year, I just want to help you see where we are currently at. You kind of walk into the mall and you recognize that some stuff, there's been a little bit of a facelift over the last couple of years. We got Velvet Robot Coffee Shop and you walk in the lobby and you see this beautiful white wall and mural and um, Forest City Church. And, and you can think, man, we're, we're doing really well financially. And the truth is, we're not. We're not. Um, honestly, uh, we came in under budget last year. And this year, we, we slashed by 20%. Trevor's doing an amazing job as a campus pastor, working with the ministries. And, and we're, we're doing a great job on very, very little to try and serve this city of Rockford and serve you all. And what I want you to kind of see is over the course of the year, our dream, our hope is that we will bring in $1.775 million, which seems like a lot of money. Um, but I, I, what I want you to see is four times a year, I just want to break it up into quarters. And be able just to kind of be honest about where we're at. So for the next 13 weeks, our hope is that we'll bring in 431K, which breaks down to about $32,125. I went to college. And um, I, I think this is really, really important. Because if we, if we can do this, man, what we'll be able to do for our city, a city that we love, a city that we feel that we are called to love and embody the life of Christ. And you'll see me, I'll do this drawing regularly because I'm a visual person. And here's the truth, January through the beginning of April, we'll call this Q1. And the truth is all we need for Q1 is each week to hit $32,125. Now, here's the piece, because again, I, I study numbers. Um, my dad was um, a CPA for the city of Grand Rapids um, and like a vice president, commercial real estate firm. And, and what's amazing is even the numbers that we hit last year, for as large of a church as we have, the giving was done by less than half of the church. And, and this is where I'm inviting every one of us as you dive into the word, Luke and Acts, to actually help us. And it might just start small, but every little means that you can give will help us hit this to help us serve a city that we love. The way that my family and I give is a reoccurring gift, and we use the app. And the app is awesome because you have the reading plan. You have the podcast. You have devotionals. You kind of see all the havens that are coming, the events. It's an amazing way. And maybe for some of you, it's just, just taking that first step. And I just would love to challenge you. 
if you believe in this place, you believe in what God is doing here, would you join us to help us start 2023 off right so that we can serve so many more people who we know need the story of grace and peace found in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Thank you so much for that little giving update. Um, Again, the Bible talks about money 2,000 times. There's been people who have used it to create shade and shame. I just think it's connected to our spiritual formation. But the truth is, what I'm so excited about is that we're diving into these two books. You heard Trevor talk about it. Luke and Acts, written by one man, Luke. And he writes it all about one man named Jesus. And you get to the book of Acts, it's about one church that is spreading throughout the ancient Near East. And you have one man writing about one man, about one church, all for one man. And this one man's name is Theophilus. And just think about this. This guy spends so many hours writing 26% of the New Testament for one dude, for one man. And I guarantee you, Luke never thought 2,000 some years later in the city of Rockford, a bunch of people would be gathering for a whole year to study his work. All he was thinking about was his one friend who might be able to learn with certainty, Luke 1.1 1, 1 says, who this man Jesus truly was. So here's my question for you. My question is this, who is your Theophilus? Who is the person in your life that God has put where you have a unique level of favor, a unique level of influence? And maybe this year, as you read this book, thinking about Luke writing about one man and one church for one man, Theophilus, that maybe God might whisper a name, someone who who works near you in a cubby or, or who works Uh, in the next office over, someone who lives in the neighboring city or, or neighborhood, someone that you know, and maybe God might whisper for you to invite them here to experience what you have. My friends, this is what discipleship will do. The more that you get deeper with Jesus, the more that you'll realize that grace isn't just for you. It's for everyone always, amen? Amen. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to dive in to the book of Luke. But here's what I need you to know. I need you to know that this whole series, you'll see Luke and Acts, and it'll say calling all disciples. And we are walking through these two books, but we're going to do it almost like podcast seasons. And we're going to have four seasons. And this first season is called calling all disciples. Now the word disciple in Hebrew is the word Talmudim. Let me hear you say Talmudim. And it literally means an apprentice, a student, someone who wanted to be like their rabbi. And for so many years growing up, I grew up in Southern California. I thought I was supposed to be a Christian. And I came to realize that being a Christian in so many ways kind of was connected to, do I believe the right things? Do I vote for the right people? Do I behave in the right ways? And if I believe and I behave, then I could belong. And then I, I started to kind of think that Jesus just had this like perfect long hair and dark blue eyes and pale skin because that's the paintings that I'd see in my grandparents' house or my church. And then I, I moved to Michigan when I was in my late teenage years and I came across two teachers, a guy by the name of Rob and a guy by the name of Ray. And Ray was a rabbi. Ray was someone who was looking for Talmudim. And if you ever wanted to meet Ray out in Holland, Michigan, 
He was a high school teacher. He spent half the year teaching high school students, and the remaining part of the year he was studying in Israel, and he was taking people there. And Ray, if you wanted to meet with him, you had to meet with him at 5 a.m. at a truck stop outside of Holland. And I remember showing up there the first time at 4.58 in the morning. I hadn't had coffee. I was exhausted. I'm, ba- I'm barely up. I'm sitting down next to this guy trying to learn what the difference is between being a Talmudim and a Christian. What does it mean to be a disciple? And this guy walks in and he's so fired up. He sits down and he starts screaming at me at five in the morning. Do you want to be like your rabbi? And I'm like, what is wrong with you? Do you have chutzpah? Do you have passion? And I'm like, Bro, it's five in the morning. And I'm thinking there's all these truck drivers just walking in and out. And I'm, I'm like image conscious. I'm like, dude, just, just bring it down a little bit. Be cool, my man, be cool. And he's like, you, if you're gonna actually wanna follow Jesus, you gotta understand that to be a Talmudim was to be just like your rabbi. And just as we sang this song, Give Me Jesus, I think for many of us, man, I want a lot of things and Jesus to be part of it. But what Ray would say was, man, you got to want Jesus with everything. And for much of my life, I didn't. I wanted a lot of other stuff. When you begin to read Luke and you read Acts, you're going to be invited to be a Talmudim. And you got to understand that the Jewish nation, they weren't trying to make anything but disciples. It was huge for them. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter six. I'll start there. Bring your Bibles to church. I I dream that that we would be a church that's flipping through the pages. I think that there are two sensory things that just move heaven. One is the smell of a Traeger or Weber grill. It's just an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And then the second is when a church is just flipping through the pages because they love God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, is probably the verse that's like at the center of what the Jewish people believe. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. I love this because even when you read in Hebrew, there's this word, mahore, and they don't even know how to translate it. It's like, love God with all your heart. That makes sense. With all your mind, yeah, okay. With all your soul, yeah. But mahode, what does that mean? The best translation that they have is with all your muchness. Like with all of your essence. With every atom and molecule and pound and ounce and hair that makes up you, every part of your DNA, may it love God. Continues on, it says this, verse five. Verse six, these commandments that I give you today are, are to be on your hearts. Verse seven, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This was the idea. If our people were going to love God with every ounce of their being, we also had to make sure that the next generation and the next generation and the next generation wanted that as well. And so it was their job to impress these commandments into them. But the question really became is, when do you start? When do you actually start? And how are Talmudim actually made? 
How do you make a disciple? How do you impress this on the kids? How do these kids begin to actually want this book, to know this book, to live this book, to embody this book? There was a great quote that I found. It says this, which I think is just so fascinating. Under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil, a student, a disciple. But from six upwards, we receive him or her and stuff them with Torah like an ox. This is just amazing. So for the first five years, we don't teach this book. But from age six on, we stuff them with the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, like we would stuff an ox. Now, you got to understand that in most cities, they had a, a little synagogue. A little synagogue would be taught by a local Torah teacher. And, and this is what would happen at age six. A little boy or a little girl would be holding both parents' hands, mom and dad, and they begin to walk towards the synagogue. A whole group of these like kindergarten age first graders would show up to the synagogue and a rabbi would be there. And this local rabbi would say, my son, my daughter, welcome. And the child would be nervous, look at mom, look at dad. And then the rabbi would say, can I see your hand? And the child would look at mom and mom would nod and dad nod. And so they would break from holding their parents' hand and reach out their hand. At this moment, the rabbi would pull out a bunch of honey. And these kids had only grown up eating fish and bread and olives and grapes. And all of a sudden, the rabbi would begin to put honey all over the child's hand. And then the rabbi would say, my son, my daughter, taste. And the kid would look at mom and dad and they'd nod. And so then the kid would eat. They've never had honey before in their life. That's really good. And their eyes would just get wide open. Remember like if you've ever saw when you were around a one-year-old and their parents decided on their one-year-old birthday to give them like frosting and sprinkled donuts for the first time. And they had grown up eating like Gerber, like broccoli that had been mashed together. And now for the first time they're eating and their eyes wake up and they're like, sort of glad, but sort of like, you've been holding out on me. And in this moment, when the child would taste it, the rabbi would get down on their knee and say, my son or my daughter, what does it taste like? And the child would, would look back and say, it's sweet. And then the rabbi would say, my son, my daughter, this is what the word of God is. It is sweet like honey. When you taste and see this book, you will taste and see that the Lord is good. Quick time out. How many of us, this book has lost its sweetness? Or how many of us has this book just been up on a shelf and for some apparent reason, we lost the belief that this book could actually bring a level of sweetness to our soul and our mind and our being. And can you imagine if your first experience with this book was someone telling you it's sweet like honey? For some of us, it was connected to shame or judgment. We didn't feel like we knew what we were doing. We felt isolated. But right from the very beginning, the Jewish people wanted these kids to know it's sweet. Now, what's amazing is these kids would begin 
in a class, and that class was called Bet Sefer. And Ray and Rob taught me this, and it's from the ages of six to ten. And Sefer, Bet means house, and Sefer means house of the book. And it was here where you would study the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And by the age of 10, most of these Jewish boys and girls had the Torah memorized. Leviticus, memorized. Numbers, memorized. Which I'm sure some of you have numbers memorized. Not at all. But if you were the best of the best of the best, you would move from Bet Sefer to Bet Talmud. And Talmud means learning. So the house of learning. And here, from 10 to 14, you would learn to memorize the entire Old Testament, known as the Tanakh. You would learn the art of asking questions. And in, in our culture, we were, it's like, what's two plus two? But in Jewish culture, they, they would answer with another question. What's two plus two? Well, what's five minus one? And then the, the rabbi would say, well, what's two times two? And the, and, the, and the disciple would say, well, what's one plus three? They would just do this back and forth, trying to learn the art of questions and asking them appropriately. Now, if you know much about Jesus in Luke chapter two, if you've been reading, you know that he finds himself at the temple and his parents don't know where he is. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter two. We're gonna make our way through this uh, first few chapters of the Bible to get to Luke 5. But in Luke chapter 2, something happens. In chapter 2, it says this, verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Verse 47. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding in his answers. You jump up to a few verses of verse 42. Look what it says. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. So here's a 12-year-old Jesus. He's a part of Bet Talmud. He understands how to ask questions. He sees other rabbis and teachers of the law and priests, and he goes up to them, and he's like, well, what about this question? What about this question? And they are blown away by his questions and his answers and his understanding. Because this is what he was a part of. Bet Midrash. Was the next one? So you had Bet Sefer, you had Bet Talmud, and then you had Bet Midrash. And Bet Midrash was from 14 on. And Bet Midrash, Midrash literally means house of interpretation. And this is where you would leave the local kind of synagogue and you would look for a rabbi who had authority. In Hebrew, it's Shmiha, a rabbi with Shmiha. And this Shmiha could actually allow them to offer up new interpretations of the text. Which is why, when you see in the, the Gospels, you'll see, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said that there is someone who has taught you this is the way to look and interpret this text, but I tell you, I'm bringing you a new interpretation. And so rabbis, who had this level of authority, wanted Talmudim that they could actually teach them their school of interpretation so that their ideas could be further influenced in the various cities in the ancient Near East. And what they would call a rabbi's interpretation, they called it a yoke. It sounds kind of weird. Some of you might think an egg yoke. No, a yoke was more of this like a bull, two bulls walking at the same pace. 
And the yoke was kind of that, that wooden piece that was wrapping and connecting them, these two bulls together. Every time I've seen this kind of picture, when I've heard somebody describe the yoke, it seems really, really oppressive. So I'm like, what, what? how is this a good thing? Until a rabbi actually told me, and he showed me this picture. And this is probably a better understanding of it. So imagine your rabbi, Jesus, head through one of those, and your head through the next. And as Jesus takes a step, you take a step. As Jesus picks up his pace, you pick up your pace. As Jesus grazes in the presence of God, you graze in the presence of God. As Jesus stops and interacts with this person, you stop and interact with this person. This concept of the yoke was about you learning to go at the pace of your rabbi, slowing us down to see and be and do what our rabbi did. This is really fascinating to me. Because I realized that for many of us, we were taught to be Christians, believe the right things, vote for the right person, act in the right ways. But Jesus was looking for disciples. He was looking for people who wanted to be like him more than anything. And can you imagine a church and a whole bunch of people who were like, all we want to be is like our rabbi? Can you imagine the faith adventure every one of us would go on? Can you imagine the the places that God would actually take us? Because everything inside of us was like, I feel like Jesus is calling me into this, and I want to go. The ways in which we would be humble, sacrificial, servant-minded, the ways that we would love, the ways that we talk about the grace that we had. And I'm telling you, the more that you dive in, not trying to see this as what can I know, but who can I become as a disciple, it'll change you. It really, really will. Our first week in this series, Eric taught from Luke chapter 3. And he taught about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was a rabbi with Shmiha. And his message wasn't one at the temple. It was out in the wild. And he was pointing people to this message of Repentance, preparing their hearts and their minds for this coming Messiah. And what's amazing is then last week, Trevor taught, I thought it was a fantastic message. I loved it. You had Jesus offering up his vision for what kind of ministry he was going to be about in Luke 4. The kind of heartbeat, what he was going to do, what people could expect from him. But here's the truth. What does a rabbi need? What does a rabbi need if you begin your ministry and you are a teacher and you have shmiha and you have authority? What do you need? You need disciples. You need people. And you got to understand that back in those days, when someone had gone through Bet Sefer and they were the best of the best and they moved to Bet Talmud and they're the best of the best and they went to Bet Midrash, they would walk up to a traveling rabbi and they would say, Rabbi, I have been studying you. Can I be your disciple? Can I be your Talmudim? And that rabbi would begin to ask some questions because that rabbi's got to make sure, do a little reference check. Does this person have what it takes? And they'd start asking questions and, and that Talmudim would start answering with some more questions. They go back and forth. And if that rabbi thought that this young 14-year-old had what it takes, he would say, come, follow me. 
But if he did not think that this young person did not have what it takes, he would say, you don't have what it takes. I want you to go return to your home and do what your mother or father does. Get married, have babies, and raise them to be rabbis. Go ply your trade. That's what they would say, ply your trade. And you gotta understand, if you study the ancient Near East like rabbinic tradition, you don't have stories of a rabbi going looking for their disciples until you get to Luke 5. Luke 5 is the first time that we have a rabbi with authority going and actually looking for some disciples. So if you have a Bible, turn with me there. He says this in verse 1 of Luke chapter 5. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, if you don't know how to say the word and you're reading it publicly, just read it quickly and with authority and move on. Lake of Gennesaret. The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, Simon's Peter that we know, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boats. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. I think he's trying to be really nice to Jesus. He doesn't want to do this. I think he's honestly just going, man, we have been working our tails off and caught nothing. And man, you're not even a fisherman. You're a rabbi. I'm going to do this in honor and respect for your position, but not because I actually believe you know what you're talking about. Continues on. It says this. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the number of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. It's amazing. When you look at Matthew chapter four, he tells the same story, but then he showcases that phrase, where Jesus, after experiencing this moment, looks at these young fishermen, and says, come, follow me, be my disciples. This was the first time ever a rabbi had gone and said, you can be like me. But if they're fishermen, what had happened? Some rabbi had told them that they weren't good enough. What had happened? They had been rejected, counted out, considered not good enough. And I think some of us in Rockford know what that feels like. I love the NBA. My favorite point guards are Jalen Brunson, Chris Paul, Steph Curry, and Fred Van Fleet. And you, and you all know 
He was a kid who went to Auburn High, was rated 150th out of high school in 2012. But not one Power Five conference even gave this kid a look. They didn't think he had what it takes. They counted him out. So where does he go? Wichita State, the Shockers. And he, he, he doesn't even start as a freshman. He gets a little bit of run time. His sophomore year gets a little bit more run time. The last two years with Wichita State, he wins conference player of the year. And on July 18th, 2016, in downtown Rockford, he decides to throw a party because he actually believes he's going to get drafted in the NBA. The problem was, not one of the teams chose him. And most of these moments, just think about this for a moment. Most of these times, you throw a party because you know for a fact you are getting drafted. And now he's with all of his friends and family, and they're looking at him. And most guys... They would just peace out, angry, mad. And to Fred Van Fleet's credit, you can video, you can see this on the internet. Someone like took out a phone and videotaped him and he got up and he basically just says, I, I didn't expect it to go this way. But let me be really honest. I've been counted out my whole life. Nobody wanted me. Nobody thought I had what it takes. Nobody's actually expecting anything from me, but I'm gonna tell you right here, right now, I'm gonna prove you all wrong. I'm going to prove them all wrong. And I'm going to bet on myself. And I'm going to show the world that I am not done playing hoops. And, and this kid, this kid ends up getting a call from the Toronto Raptors. And all he says is, I just need one shot. One shot. He makes the summer league team. He makes the, the team. He starts getting a little bit of play. He wins an NBA championship. Signs an $85 million deal. He's up for about a $120 million deal in a couple years. And this guy has given so much back to the city of Rockford. He is gritty. He was counted out. And I'm telling you, what I love about Luke 5 is that every one of those disciples have been counted out. And I think what you have to imagine is Jesus, if he were to be here today looking for disciples, he'd be looking for us. People have been rejected. People who don't have the best past. People who have messed up. People who don't have it all together. People who don't have all of the, the prestige. People who just haven't done what everyone expected them to do. And Jesus would look at them and say, Leakarai. 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 Come follow me. And I'm telling you what. Something special is going to happen. If you look at the disciples, this is who they were. They were made up of a fisherman four of them, a tax collector who was like the most hated person to the Jewish nation, tax collectors, because they worked for Rome and they just were taxing the people like crazy. And then a zealot, you know what a zealot was? A zealot was a guy who carried a knife and wanted to kill tax collectors. And Jesus was like, yeah, I'm gonna take one of you and one of you. I'm gonna put a, a donkey and an elephant together. This is gonna be, I'm gonna put a Packer fan and a bear. I'm gonna put them together. And we're going to watch what happens. And this, this is what Jesus was doing. He was bringing this motley crew of people who would never be together. Two business owners. We don't know from the text what Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Thaddeus, or James, the son of Alphaeus, did. But Jesus was looking for this ragtag group of rejects, people who had been counted out. But he was like, but if you follow me, and you do what I do, embody what I say, you're going to have the thrill of a lifetime. I'm telling you what, friends, the more that we dive into this book, 
the more that you are gonna see what God has for every one of us. But the truth is, what's amazing to me is those fishermen, they still had to drop their nets. There's even though a rabbi was like, you, you have what it takes, come follow me. Those fishermen still had to look and go, do I actually believe him? And sometimes we Jedi mind trick ourselves when we come to this book. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this. Maybe the next best right step for you is to go to that learning haven on February 13th. But sometimes we, we stop ourselves and Jesus has all the trust and belief in us that we can be like him. And many of us are like, I can't, I can't. But what if, what if for an entire year, every one of us leaned in and said, we're gonna read this. We're gonna study our rabbi. Because the truth is, it's nearly impossible to be a Talmudim if you don't know your rabbi's teaching. And the truth is, many of us know what Fox has to say or what CNN has to say. Many of us know what our t- favorite talk radio person has to say. Many of us know what our parents believe. But what about you? What do you believe Jesus says? What do you believe Jesus teaches? And what if you actually can know this book? What if you actually could find yourself seeing that this book is so sweet and fulfilling and nourishing to your mind and your heart, your soul and all of your muchness? What if you could actually discover the life Jesus has for you? I've been sitting on this message for a few weeks I just keep thinking, I think this is going to be the most important year for this church. Because we survived COVID. We survived seasons of, of distance and separation and angst. We're in two locations here in Rockford and Elgin. But now we've got these two books to ground us. And as I was just praying, I just felt like there were five challenges I needed to give you. Five challenges. And I'm not saying every one of you is going to do all five. Man, I'll tell you, if every one of us did all five, this would be an amazing year for our church. Number one, I just want to invite you, read a chapter a day. I know it's got a little confusing. People are like, what chapter are we on? We're teaching on Luke 5, but what am I supposed to read? Let me just tell you this real quick they're not always going to line up. Some weeks we're gonna be in Luke five on the weekends or Luke six or Luke eight or Luke 12. But what we want you to do is just slowly keep walking through, marinating on the text. So this week, we're gonna read Luke three. Luke three. Some of you are like, I already read Luke three. Good, read it again. That's what disciples do. We have you read Luke three. And then the next week, we're gonna read Luke 4. The next week, we're gonna read Luke 5. They're not always on the weekend and in our quiet times gonna be connected. But the first thing the disciples do is they read, they know the text, they know the rabbi. The second challenge, I'm gonna ask you to discuss it with a friend. I'm gonna ask you to discuss it. And maybe, maybe that's with someone in this church. Maybe it's with a family member who lives in another county or state. Maybe it's with a coworker. Maybe it's with a neighbor. But invite somebody else in. My man Asa right here, he and I have been chopping. 
talking about it. And this guy, man, he, you, you want to learn about the Bible, Asa right here, he'll tell you. We were reading Luke 1 together, and he was like, dude, did you see about Elizabeth? Man, it gives me so much hope. It gives me so much hope. I was talking with Asa, and then I talked with an eighth grader named Ariel. And Ariel, man, he, he, he loves God. And he just was showing me something that I didn't even see. Man, when you begin to chop it up with different people, you'll get to learn different perspectives of how they see the text. Read a chapter, marinate on it. Two, discuss it. But three, I want you to be here each weekend. Next couple of weekends, Chad Brueggemann's coming and he's, he's fired up. And you, gotta, you, you gotta come expect it because it's like drinking from a fire hydrant. Just, just shh, a lot more humor than me. But that guy is amazing. But I, I don't want you just to attend. I also want you to invite. I asked you, man, who's your Theophilus? And there's some open blue seats here. And I think it would be amazing if we became the kind of church, you look at what Jesus said, drop your nets, and I'm gonna make you a fisher of people. To be a disciple is to learn how to take the grace and the story that we've been given and give that away. And will you be rejected when you make an invitation? Yes. Will it feel like junior high dance? Yes, it does. But don't say somebody else's no for them. We read, we discuss, we attend, we invite. And lastly, we give. Because this is our house. And we take care of our house. And I'm gonna ask that you would give generously. And that can come through your tithe, but that can also come through serving. And I'm gonna ask every one of you, the more that you dive deeper into this and you open your life to make room for what God wants to do, you'll read, you'll discuss, you'll attend, you'll invite, and you'll give. And through that, God's gonna do something profound. I'm gonna have the team come out. They're gonna lead us in one song. It's called Make Room. And I, I, I just went off the cuff last service and I just put this honey right down at the front because I just had this sense that for some of us, the Bible's lost its sweetness. Church has lost its sweetness. I just invited you as Lauren begins to lead this song, Make Room, maybe, maybe just maybe, some of you just need to come down and just go, make it sweet again. Make it sweet again. I'm making room. I'm going to read. I'm going to talk. I'm going to attend. I'm going to invite. I'm going to give. Just make it sweet again. So if that's you, there's some honey. No pressure. But I'm going to pray, and then we're going to respond. God, thank you for what you're doing. I'm believing that you want to make room in our hearts and our minds so that we can be disciples, chasing after you, filled with your spirit, willing to surrender whatever is in the way so that we can chase after you. I'm believing for such powerful move your spirit and of your grace here in Rockford and beyond. So God, work. Work in me. Work in us. I promise you, we will give you the glory. Whatever level of space we're able to make room in our life for you, fill us up to the brim. We pray all this your name and everyone said, amen. Let's stand in response.